Have you heard the one about the shopkeeper in New York City in 1870, riding westward to his cousin in Colorado? And the US post worker who then went riding westward to deliver the letter? No? Well, that's because it's not really much of a joke. It's just me finally acknowledging the very bad pun of this podcast name. I'll go ahead and give a moment of silence for everyone to let out some collective groans and roll their eyes at me. I think that'll do. Welcome to the Writing Westward Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. This month, we talk with Professor Cameron Blevins about his recent book, Paper Trails, The U.S. Post and the Making of the American West, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. We will also mention briefly the associated digital history and mapping website that goes with the book, gossamernetwork.com. So once and for all, we are finally going to talk about both writing westward and writing westward. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West, historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest, and why we're talking to them. Cameron Blevins is Associate Professor in the History Department at the University of Colorado, Denver. He is a historian and a leader in the growing field of digital history. In his recent book, Paper Trails, The U.S. Post and the Making of the American West, Blevins masterfully integrates his usage of digital mapping and data analysis with traditional archival research to reveal not just how the U.S. Post grew westward in the mid to late 19th century along with the rest of American expansion, but how it facilitated that expansion. The promise of cheap, reliable, and accessible mail delivery allowed military forces and posts to operate and more efficiently extend state power in the West. It allowed a highly mobile and transient Western population to make and maintain connections with family, friends, business partners, and others across expansive geographies and rugged topographies. And it served to integrate far-flung Western locales and their populations into national, social, cultural, political, and economic networks and systems. It may not be flashy, but Bevins convincingly reveals how important the U.S. Post was to the American West. This is an excellent case study in how careful historians can take topics that regularly appear in the background of history, but bringing them to the foreground 
and piecing together just how influential they were in building and supporting and steering those more prominent and familiar historical narratives. Professor Cameron Blevins, welcome to Writing Westward. Hey, Brendan. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoy topics and well, books that take topics that seem on the surface to be mundane or somewhat unassuming, but then uh, a scholar opens them up and reveals you know, unexpected outsized influence of, of the topic. And the U.S. Post mail doesn't sound like the spiciest or most exciting or revelatory of topics, but you very convincingly prove otherwise. So t tell us a bit about how you came to this topic. And, and I'm to start, I'm, I'm kind of curious if you had a, a skepticism of the topic or its importance when you started off, or if you were convinced from day one. Yeah, I feel like the subtitle for the book should have been the US Post. It's it's not as boring as you think, maybe, or something like that. Um, but no, it's, it's a similar, uh, similar feeling on my end, where I've, I've always been really fascinated by the kind of mundane, daily, almost hidden structures uh, that shape, you know, our lives. Um, and in this particular case, uh, the U.S. Post was really one of the most important um, of those daily structures for 19th century Americans and Westerners in particular. Um, and so I kind of came at the topic uh, as a graduate student, and I was not actually interested in the U.S. Post per se, but I was really interested in Western geography and trying to map out where people were moving to across the region during the 1800s, which is actually a very difficult thing to do because we don't have a lot of great information and data on a kind of year by year basis. And so I stumbled into the idea of using post offices to try to serve as a kind of proxy for people who are living around there. Once I actually started looking at that, though, I started to realize that uh, post offices were more than just a proxy. They were actually phenomenally important institutions in local communities. And then that uh, opened the door to this kind of larger research project of looking at how this network and this uh, system really did structure the Western United States and its history. So you're interested in mobility, but th there's not a data set. To, especially, you know, mid to late 19th century, people aren't just moving around the West. They are moving all of the time and often staying in one place uh, and we'll get to some of the stories of some of the characters you introduce, but they're somewhere for a few months and then somewhere else. And you trace this through letters and some other things, but that's not, that's for one family, right? You needed a big data set to try to track. So the post offices and that federally organized data is what, what you landed on. Correct. And I, uh, I started when I was a graduate student trying to collect that data myself. There are these uh, rolls and rolls of microfilm uh, that are housed at the National Archives that, you know, have information about every post office in the United States, when it opened, when it closed. Uh, and as you might imagine, that is pretty laborious labor there, uh, as it were. And uh, fortunately, about after a year or so of kind of trying to do that myself by hand, um, I came across the work of a postal historian and stamp collector named Richard Hellbach, who had spent decades of his life effectively doing just that, building a database of post offices, about 166,000 total, um, covering you know, all of US history up to the 1990s. 
and it was this remarkable source of information. Um, unfortunately, Richard Helbach uh, passed away kind of before I was able to actually discover his uh, his work. But fortunately for me, uh, his wife was still selling this database online. Uh, and so I, you know, sent her 80 bucks. And a couple of weeks later, a CD arrived in the mail that was probably the best $80 I think I've ever spent, uh, and really became the, the basis for a lot of my analysis and my work uh, for the book. Oh, that's great. And was he a, a professionally trained historian or just a and actually, his background to... was more in geography, but he, uh, from my understanding, is really one of the major leaders kind of in the in the stamp collector and postal historian community. He founded um, the major kind of postal history journal for enthusiasts. Um, and so it was a really influential guy. And it's really uh, I'm constantly kind of thinking I would have loved to have met him and at the very least kind of thanked him for all of all of his work. Yeah, we all build off the work of others. And uh, so that's interesting that, you know, you I don't know how many more years you would have had it taken to kind of rebuild the database that he ended up uh, having provided you, but I'm glad that that hopefully saved you some good time. You uh, introduced your book. Uh, you have a, a little method on notes in the front, which isn't something we see very often, uh, but it's because you are using some very different methodologies and you describe this as uh, a work of digital history. Can you explain uh, for listeners what that is? And I'll try not to get uh, too too academic here. Digital history is uh, at at a basic level just using computers and technology to study or communicate or teach about the past. Um, and this can encompass a whole lot of different stuff. So this can be a library taking some of its paper collections and scanning them and making them available online. Or it can be something like uh, using text analysis to look at, you know, millions of documents, or in my case, using spatial data sets to map out patterns um, over time. And uh, that's mainly what my kind of area of digital history focuses on is this historical geography. And so I realize a podcast uh, medium is not the best for trying to convey visual patterns, but what I ended up using was taking Richard Hellbach's database and then using that to map out on a year-by-year -year basis the entire geography of the U.S. postal system. And so you can imagine tens of thousands of little dots on a map kind of expanding into different areas on a year-by-year -year basis. And uh, being able to map out this huge network uh, and get a sense for the scale and scope of it, but also some of the spatial patterns that were uh, happening in the Western United States led to a lot of uh, really important insights for me to understand the role that this system was playing in the region. So there's things that you came to or uh, truths you discovered that you would not have been able to do without using these digital tools. It's just too much data to, to visualize. And that's really kind of the power of digital history. And as you mentioned, you know, a part of digital history might be digitizing resources, but that's kind of the lowest hanging fruit, right? It's the real power is- Well, in... some archivists would probably beg to defer. They, they <laughs> might say it's actually the hardest, uh, hardest or highest hanging fruit, but, uh, but point taken, but that, yes. But that's something I can do and that I can right. access, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it takes a special skill set to then actually crunch data and use digital tools to to teach us new things. Um, I'll mention for listeners, if you go to the, the show notes or our website, we'll link to it, but you have a companion website, gossamernetwork.com. 
And uh, if you're if people are driving, don't don't pull this up on like your phone at a stoplight because people will start honking at you. But it's really fascinating uh, to look through these these moving data visualizations, and it's useful to kind of have uh, uh, to maybe have pulled up on a screen as as you're reading. Um, of course, then the book does have a lot of maps. Um, uh, the, the website is then hosting though moving uh, maps that move, and you can you can scrub back and forth through time. But um, how how do you explain to us the challenge then of taking uh, you know this geographic data crunching that you've done? Uh, and not just translating it into maps, but translating it into narrative and into historical analysis that we can sit down and read without needing any kind of, you know, uh, without maybe even needing the companion website or without needing any digital skills of our own. Yeah, and the uh, the number of maps was uh, a constant headache for the poor uh, people that were laying out the book at Oxford uh, University Press. Uh, there's something like, you know, 60 or 70 figures in the book, which they're not quite used to with most history monographs here. Uh, but the way I've always thought of it, at least how this is at least played out in my own work, is that studying something like the U.S. Post, it was this massive, massive entity. Uh, it was the largest communication network really in the world, the most expansive postal system in the world. Uh, it had in the 1890s about two and a half times as many post office locations as there are today. And so the mapping side of this, the data analysis, really helped me wrap my head around the larger shape of this network. It's really, really difficult to get a sense for just, again, the scale of something like that with 75,000 post offices without trying to zoom out you know, to 60,000 feet and try to see some of these larger patterns. Um, but the flip side of this is that none of us typically experience networks and systems at that scale, right? And that's the case for 19th century Americans as well. And so for me to really understand what role did this network play in the lives of individual people, that's where I had to drill back down to kind of the, the, uh, the floor level here and go into the archives and look at the letters and writings of Westerners who were living, you know, in the middle of Arizona, for instance, and how they were using the mail to subscribe to half a dozen newspapers or send letters to their sister in San Diego um, or send money through the mail. So all, all the ways in which individual people were interacting with this network was on a much more local kind of level that required more traditional archival research. So the data, the maps, that gives you a, gave you a framework, but it didn't tell you, it, it told you some stories, but not with really with any humans with names so more traditional archival research that helps you then kind of build on that network and then tell stories through it or use those stories to help us understand make sense of this these maps and the data and everything um, exactly yeah and i think there's um maybe a common misconception or attention at least with how people see digital history and some of these more data heavy approaches to studying the past and i think there's a misconception um that that's you know, all there is, or that people who are doing that are just caring about some of the larger patterns. And it's really a combination of those two scales of analysis for me, which is where I arrived at some of the, you know, major kind of conclusions. And what I was proudest of with my work was being able to move back and forth 
between these two scales, right? Mapping a data set is not going to replace going into the archive uh, at the Huntington Library and spending days reading letters, right? Those two things work in conjunction uh, with each other. I want to try to pull questions that for us to chew on from as much of your book as possible. Um, but first, maybe we need to talk about the U.S. Post in really broad terms. I think we generally take it for granted. I don't think people think about the U.S. Postal Service very often or critically. Um, so, I mean, how, as modern readers today, how impressed should we be with the growth and influence of the U.S. Post in the you know mid to late 19th century? You, you even bring it a little bit into the early 20th century. Um, should we be impressed by what was accomplished during these decades? Well, uh, I can tell you that uh, just as we maybe take the post for granted today, uh, 19th century Americans did as well, uh, which I actually thought was a, a really uh, telling insight into just how widespread and important this institution was. It's almost like when people stop thinking about it explicitly is when you realize that it has become embedded in everyone's lives to that uh, extent. Because it's just faded in, into the background of their exactly, life and it's just something exactly. that's just always there. Right, and so similar to today, right? The only times you think about the post usually are as if something is you know, delayed in transit or you know, lost or something like that, right? When something goes wrong, you don't think about all of the thousands of times that you do receive mail quite quickly and efficiently uh, and reliably. That's the same thing for the 1800s. Um, I, I open up the book with what I found to be maybe going back to your original opening here, in some ways, a very boring letter. And this is a letter written by a government official who'd been kind of going on a tour um, and had visited a, a Eden reservation and then had returned to his office in St. Paul, Minnesota. And this was in the middle of the Civil War. And he writes a letter that is half a page long. It's a couple sentences. And basically the entirety of the letter is saying, hey, I left my uh, my coat while I was you know visiting you guys. Feel free to keep it. And that's it. There was nothing else. There was no official business. There was no uh, anything, even a discussion of the weather, right? And he was able to send this 400 miles kind of through um, you know the outskirts of a lot of settlements here, arriving at this uh, this Indian reservation there. And that's it, right? And I think that's really telling that Americans then were completely able to send what I kind of describe almost as the equivalent of a text message, right? After uh, the day after maybe a party or something where you left your coat there. Um, but this isn't the 21st century. This is uh, the middle of the Civil War in the 1860s. Um, and I think that is so telling about the degree to which this network has connected people fairly seamlessly um, in areas of the country uh, that you really wouldn't expect and are actually quite challenging to maintain that network. But despite that, people are able uh, able to use it uh, without a second thought. So when did the United States make this transition from an earlier era where uh, you know, it was expensive and potentially slow or even maybe unreliable, but, but where you, if you're writing a letter, you have to think carefully about every word because you pay you know, for how many pages it was or how heavy it was. Like, when did they make the transition then where they can just shoot off a text saying, hey, go ahead and keep that coat uh, to someone, you know, hundreds of miles away. I mean, out on the frontier, not like in a heavily populated or an area with lots of infrastructure. When does this transition happen? So it's an interesting shift, but I would say that 
it really does start in some ways with the very founding of the country when uh, when the you know government officials basically dedicated themselves to providing a fairly accessible uh, postal service to connect the country. And this is, you know, at a time when there's 13 states kind of hugging the Atlantic seaboard. And uh, as the historian Richard John has written in a very influential book, the U.S. Post really was the connective tissue for this founding era all the way through the 1850s that uh, that Americans, early Americans really used to stay abreast of politics, news. Um, this was a super crucial institution. Now that starts to get a little more challenging uh, in the second half of the 1800s when you face, you know, what do you do with a country that's not just 13 states along the Atlantic Ocean, but is a continental nation spanning all the way out to the Pacific coast. And that's when you see the shift in, in, in the network. They still have this kind of commitment to providing a fairly universal system and service. It's a public service, um, but you run into all sorts of challenges of geography that the West imposes. And so there's a couple shifts that take place. Um, one is a dramatic reduction in postage rates, specifically for writing something like letters. And they're following the model uh, of actually the British postal system, which instituted it earlier. And so they drop the amount of postage that you pay. Um, and in response, Americans start writing more and more and more letters, right? They become very, very active letter writers. We have a fairly high literacy rate in the United States. Um, and then the second one is that uh, in the early 1860s, uh, the U.S. Post or Congress actually ends up getting rid of distance as a factor in determining postage. And that is in response, again, to having this massive you know, country before if a letter traveled farther, you paid more. Um, and that is very much still the way for uh, for private kind of uh, private sorts of transportation. Right. Uh, but for the U.S. Post, it's a public service. And now that we have a continental nation, they basically decide, you know what, we're going to charge the exact same rate for someone sending a letter from New York to San Francisco that we are from New York uh, to Newark. Um, and that opens up all sorts of kind of possibilities for Westerners to be able to use this system. Um, so I'd say that's the kind of shift that's happening uh, with this massive territorial expansion in the West, kind of through the 1850s and the early 1860s. So is this a chicken or the egg situation? Is it this rapid continental westward expansion that leads to these, uh, uh, you know, these new developments or revisions of the postal system? Or is it the postal system that allows for the westward expansion? Or I, I mean, obviously, they're happening concurrently. But as you look at that transition period, are, are there moments where... Uh, where it wasn't working, where there were discussions saying, oh, if we don't fix or make the postal system work differently, westward expansion isn't going to work. Or from the other direction, other people saying, um, you know, westward expansion has already happened and the postal system isn't working. So how is that debate going on in the moment? I think what's really interesting to me is that um, the degree to which Americans in the 19th century had a working assumption that the postal system, again, by the 1860s or so, uh, really was almost kind of like a birthright of, uh, of living in the United States and having access to the mail and having access to the mail that's affordable um, and easy to get was kind of baked into people's assumptions. Um, there was not really any talk about, you know, 
privatization or inefficiency or any of these kind of things that might come up later in the in the 20th century in the 1800s you know this was the most expansive communications network and people just assumed that it would continue to be so even with this this massive kind of territorial expansion and so occasionally you get uh congressional debates where you know some you know representatives or senators that live in more densely settled you know, New England states, for instance, might grumble a little bit about the cost of providing mail to some distant mining camp in Idaho. Um, but generally speaking, no one is going to touch the post because it's such a popular institution amongst their constituents. So their constituents want to have the mail and no one really cares about the idea of like the U.S. Post having to kind of pay for itself. That's a much, much more uh, more recent assumption that we have developing again in the 1900s. In the 1800s, uh, this idea of efficiency didn't really exist yet. But so if someone goes and moves off to, you know, remote Idaho mining camp, with that, they weren't like fretting over, oh, but I won't be able to get mail anymore. It was just kind of assumed it would happen. Not, whereas like if they move up there, they maybe say, well, we're going to be really far away from a rail line. That wasn't expected to be infrastructure immediately provided but the post was so that's that's a very different that's a very different dynamic um you talk about the post as being um, a form or a conduit for state power and for expanding state power across the continent and i think we when we think about federal power moving across the west we think about forts the military Sometimes you talk about the railroad and kind of everything that comes in the wake of infrastructure. And I've talked about all those things with my students, but the post is not part of that conversation. At least I don't think I've taught it that way. So what are the ways in which the expansion of the post brings state power with it to the, to the frontier and beyond? I think it's important to try to remember uh, this different era of American governance in the 1800s. I think this is really crucial. Um, today, we have certain, or at least I should say, I have certain uh, conceptions of what you know the federal government is. And in a lot of ways, we kind of interact with the federal government in all sorts of different ways, or state governments, or that kind of um, much more bureaucratic, top-down, large organizations um, that are just kind of part of American society and life in 2022. Um, in the 1800s, really for a lot of people, especially especially if you lived in rural areas, the federal government did not have a major presence there. And for most Americans, the primary interaction that you had with the federal government was through your local post office. And this is where it starts to look very different from today. Um, I don't know about you, but when I go to the post office, right, it's almost always a standalone building of some kind. You walk inside, there's, you know, a couple people working there with USPS uniforms on. Um, and it's a fairly, you know, stable kind of uh, setup. In the 1800s, going to the post office for most people that didn't live in big cities involved walking not to a post office building, but to your local general store and uh, asking the store owner if you had any letters because this system was essentially grafted onto an existing private infrastructure. And rather than having these standalone post office buildings, the government would pay a local store owner or other, uh, other person there to 
pass out letters in their place of business for, you know, 50 bucks a year, something like that. Um, and then the mail was transported, not in right uh, official uh, U.S. post uh, vehicles or anything like that, but it was a contract that was given to a private stagecoach company. They would toss a sack of mail in the back of their stagecoach alongside their freight or passengers. And so it was this much more flexible kind of form of government power that I think makes it a lot less recognizable or at least harder to see as a form of government power. Um, but by mapping out all this stuff, by looking at how Americans were using the mail, you start to understand just how important it was. And to go back to what we were talking about earlier, if you're a miner who decides to go to uh, the mountainous region of Idaho, you go there fully expecting to be able to send letters back to your family in Ohio or subscribe to newspapers and magazines and stay uh, current with political affairs or commercial developments. Um, if you're a store owner or another business person, you are using the mail to send invoices or receipts or mortgages, all sorts of kind of financial instruments that we don't think about um, are taking place at a distance through the mail. And the ability of the post and the government to extend those lines of communication, again, we take for granted, they took for granted, that doesn't make it any less important. Yeah, it's just not maybe not as visible, but it so it serves as a, it facilitates so many things, right? So even if we say like, if we think about a military post, you know, in a fort as like, uh, you know, the face of state power out on the frontier, that military post is only able to operate and keep things going because it has dependable uh, communication networks through the post or some far-flung remote uh, settlement. Uh, you know, you can go and farm out there, but it may not be very livable long-term without the post there supporting. So it facilitates so many things uh, in westward expansion and development. Um, you mentioned how uh, a lot of postal employees, I mean, we talk about, um, yeah, like, you know, postal employees uh, today, but then uh, there were very few, especially at least, you know, out at the local level, full-time U.S. postal workers, right? It was, uh, you described it, this is an agency model where they contract out with private citizens, be it a general store owner or someone, you know, doing a stagecoach or something. What what were the advantages of that model rather than just hiring full-time federal employees all over the country? What were the advantages of that? And what were some of the costs or the problems that came with that model? So I think the the benefits and costs really do go hand in hand. And one of the main benefits, especially in the Western United States, is that it's really, really easy to get that infrastructure up and running if you are not building you know, new buildings or uh, dispatching government-run, uh, you know, carriages or anything like that. Again, instead, you're just taking the existing infrastructure that's there, the existing workforce and people, and just kind of hitching it onto that. Um, and so that meant that uh, what I was always struck by was uh, how easy it was to get a post office or a mail route to your community. And there was no kind of official form that people would fill out and check boxes. The U.S. Post is not going to send, uh, you know, uh, an official from Washington to go over the route and make sure that it actually makes sense to have something there. 
Instead, you just gather up a petition of signatures. You'd send it to your local uh, politicians, your Congress people in Washington, or the post office department itself. And then overwhelmingly, they'd approve the request and then commission a local store owner to, again, start distributing letters, contract with a stagecoach company to start carrying the mail. Um, and so this meant that people could get this mail service so quickly in shockingly remote areas. And that's the part that always kind of blows my mind, again, is that you can really quickly move into parts of the West that are, you know, at least in the contiguous United States, some of the least accessible parts of the country. And in not waiting for a railroad line certainly is not going to get there, but you're still able to get your mail very quickly. The downside of this uh, is that this is also a very unstable system. Um, especially in the Western United States that are dependent on mining, other kinds of extractive industries. Uh, these communities are popping up and then a lot of them are disappearing very quickly. And so the post is also fairly unstable as well, which in some ways can be an advantage. It allows it to kind of contract from these places as well. Uh, but this comes with the uh, double-edged sword that it is also a very kind of uh, unregulated network in the sense that you know, central administrators in Washington, they just do not have the workforce or the capacity to oversee on the ground operations in tens of thousands of places across the country. And so they're relying on these private actors to be fulfilling public functions. And it actually works fairly well, but it does lead to some lack of oversight, which might not be surprising. Um, things like corruption, for instance, uh, one of the chapters in my book deals with a whole instance of corruption in the contracting division where stagecoach companies would start using these kind of fraudulent bidding processes to win government mail contracts, uh, then inflate those contracts that were oftentimes, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, very lucrative contracts. Um, they would bribe politicians to kind of uh, influence or lobby the post to get these. Um, so there's kind of understandable uh, and maybe not surprising uh, downsides of this as well. I mean, and at the local store, there's, I don't know if I'll call it corruption, but that local store owner, by accepting this contract, right, it gives a steady amount of income, which is always nice. But there are other uh, benefits that they receive then, which could be leveraged towards um, corrupt purposes or, uh, uh, you know, growing one's personal power in the community. I explain that dynamic for us, because it also helps explain why would a store owner accept this new responsibility? Uh, so at a local level, this arrangement where, you know, commissioning a store owner to pass out letters means that whoever holds that position of postmaster in a community means that people have to come to their place of business whenever they want to send or receive mail. And so you're getting a steady stream of customers coming into your store, for instance, which kind of answers this puzzle that I always had, which is why did 19th century Americans care so much about things like who was the postmaster or where the post office was located? Because these positions were not lucrative. Uh, again, you're getting paid, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks a year. Um, these are not money making kind of uh, positions. And yet people would fight over them constantly. And if you read the letters of any national politician, uh, you see them just complaining all the time about having to adjudicate these uh, local disputes about who's going to be the local postmaster in a town. 
And again, the reason for this is because of the central function of a post office in a community as a gathering place, as people having to kind of regularly come in, a place of news, uh, gossip. Uh, if you are the postmaster, you also know where all your neighbors and customers are uh, subscribing to, probably what political parties they're part of. Um, so there's all sorts of benefits that come from this position that aren't necessarily financial, which means that people, again, fought over who got to be uh, postmaster. And this is where this element of political patronage really comes into play as well, and that these were highly politicized positions. And all of this kind of stemmed from the fact that the U.S. Post was uh, part of the executive branch of the federal government. And so that meant that whenever the presidency changed hands uh, between different parties, you would get this mass exodus of postmasters across the country. So say Republicans were in power, uh, they appoint a bunch of local Republican store owners as postmasters, Democrats win an election, come into power, and they immediately remove a bunch of those same postmasters and install Democratic uh, uh, store owners as postmasters. And so there's these huge kind of shifts of not just uh, the infrastructure itself, but who's operating the infrastructure as well. That means it's very, very unstable. I was kind of blown away when you look at some of the data, uh, the turnover rate of these government positions was phenomenal. You'd have people serving a couple months, a year or two, next election cycle would come in, they'd leave, someone else would come in, the post office would move down the street to a different store. So it's a really almost chaotic kind of arrangement as well for thinking about these advantages and disadvantages. Did local, so people were very interested and very uh, aware of who their postmaster was. And I mean, you write about how just the shocking number of complaints that are being sent into the federal government, like about like local postmasters. Uh, so they're aware of the post in that sense. But then is there awareness that they're thinking critically about how the post works? Like once it gets beyond their little settlement, is it just kind of out of sight, out of mind? Like the broader network and how it works? It is to an extent. Um, but I will say what's also interesting again uh, is that the U.S. Post was, as it remains today, actually, one of the most popular public institutions in the country. And of course, people would grumble about, you know, delayed letters or missing, you know, deliveries or something like that. Um, but again and again, Americans upheld the U.S. Post as kind of a model of what uh, active federal government could do for society. And the populist party, so this kind of agrarian, rural-based uh, political movement in the 1890s, that advocated for stronger government regulation and control of things like the railroad industry or the telegraph industry, they explicitly put in their party platform uh, the U.S. Post as the model for what they thought the federal government should do across these other sectors. Because the U.S. Post, again, was a universal public service and public good. It didn't kind of, quote unquote, discriminate on the basis of distance or how far away or how rural your area was. You just paid the same two cents on a letter to send it thousands of miles, potentially. Um, and so it was a really popular institution at that level, um, while at the same time, you know, similar to today, most people never really thought about, you know, the kind of remarkable nature of being able to address an envelope to the name of your cousin in uh, San Francisco, let's say, and then the letter showing up there four days later, and them able to get it. Yeah, it's remarkable that, yeah, how well the system worked, but it didn't work easily. It, it took a lot. So 
the government kind of made this promise or built this expectation that, yeah, wherever you go, you're going to have uh, cheap, easy, efficient um, access to the post, but actually making that happen, uh, especially as we get farther west and settlement gets more remote is very difficult. Yeah, they address that one way, as we already mentioned, through just contracting out to private local people. Um, you talk a lot also about maps and how they uh, are just constantly scrambling to keep track of these towns and post offices. They come and go. So how do they do this? How does post office mapping, how can they ever keep up with the boom and bust, right? Um, you know, this boom and bust cycle of a town pops up and six months later, it's gone. And who knows where all the residents have gone? The short answer is they they, uh, they don't, or at least they try very hard to, but uh, continually struggle. And so starting in the 1860s, uh, a new division within the post office department is a mapping division. And it's a kind of shoestring operation. Uh, it's basically one guy and then uh, a bunch of map makers. And they're trying to uh, map the entire postal network, which at that time is, you know, 35,000 post offices, roughly. And as we've talked about, those post offices could disappear at a moment's notice, uh, or the mail route might change, or it might shift locations. Uh, their names changed constantly. And so if you're trying to think of a central administrator or map maker in Washington, D.C., just trying to get uh, your handle on all this, I mean, it's hard to even take a single snapshot of what it looks like at any given time much less keep those maps current every year as it's adding thousands of new post offices while a thousand more are being discontinued or changing locations. Um, despite that, they really do, uh, they do accomplish a fair amount. And I think it's also speaks to just the level of uh, geographic uncertainty during this time. Uh, today, right, we're so used to being able to pull up our phones and look at Google Maps and know where everything is at all times. And that was not the case in the late 1800s, especially in the Western United States. And so you saw them struggling to even identify where is a post office, because it's not like they're sending out a map maker to, again, you know, some mountainous region of Idaho. Instead, they're relying on postmasters themselves to send in reports about where their office is located. And as you might expect, if you're a busy store owner uh, who's doing this as a totally part-time gig, a lot of those postmasters never replied or didn't really take the time to answer it fully. Uh, and so again, you see this kind of tension between this vast sprawling network that is serving so many different Americans, but some of the challenges that come from trying to administer that network from its center in Washington, D.C. So at any given moment, the moment that a map is completed, it's likely already inaccurate or out of date right like major hubs don't change but the farther out you get like in these little capillaries right uh there was never quite a fully accurate map correct it's definitely there there's a built-in obsolescence to to these maps but despite that they're also some of the only sources uh of comprehensive information about where all these different towns were and so you saw congressmen for instance um so hungry for getting these maps. And oftentimes the post office department would distribute these maps across the federal government because in many cases they were the most accurate and up-to-date information about, you know, if you were had a local district, where all those places were, um, how often the mail was getting delivered to them, what kind of routes connected them, uh, kind of basic information like that that, again, we take for granted 
was in fairly short supply at the time. Hmm. I mean, this discussion of these connections between uh, the federal government back east, far-flung western settlements, uh, you know, kind of leads directly to the last two chapters of your book where you're talking about ways in which the post office leads to this far-flung, you know, continental empire becoming uh, integrated and and inter, you know, t- tied together. And this was part of, you know, Jefferson's and others' concern all along. Can we have, you know, a continental republic? And Jefferson, yeah, you know, agrarian republic, yeoman farmers, all that stuff. But um, national integration uh, is a real concern the farther the farther out things get. Um, you do, and the last two chapters, one is on uh, money orders, and you use that to talk about, uh, you know, uh, integrating far-flung places with the with national uh, economies and markets. And then you also talk about rural free delivery, which brings us into the twentieth, early twentieth century. Um, so maybe let's let's first talk about the money order idea. How does the ability of making long-distance purchases? Uh, how is that revolutionized through the money order system versus, say, perhaps uh, 50 years earlier, if you wanted to purchase something on the other side of the country, uh, you had a you had a much riskier proposition. So what's the what's the change here? And again, I think it's helpful for us to you know pause and just think about all the modern day assumptions that we might have in 2022, right, that I can you know go on to a website of a store or The New York Times or another publication give them my credit card info, and boom, you have a transaction completed. Um, Whereas doing these kinds of long distance transactions in the 1800s, especially in the Western United States, was quite challenging, in part because uh, the nation's money supply was fairly unstable in rural areas, the West and the South in particular. Um, And if you were sending cash or specie through the mail, there's always the chance that it would get lost or stolen. In transit. And so starting in the 1860s, the US Post began to offer a money order service. And this actually stemmed out of the Civil War when uh, Union soldiers were trying to send you know, parts of their wages back home to family members and complaining that they're, you know, they couldn't rely on the mail to do so. They were worried about you know, things getting stolen. And so the US Post developed a system where you could go to your local post office, let's say, give them $10. The postmaster would fill out a form about who you were sending that money to. They'd send the form through the mail without the $10. And then at the uh, recipient's post office, they'd go to their local postmaster and get $10 back. And so it's this kind of um, almost a small scale checking system. It was only for small transactions. This wasn't, you know, you're not going to use this to complete major purchases. But as they started to offer that service to more and more locations, Americans jumped at it, and Westerners in particular were really hungry for this service. Again, if you were living, let's say, uh, in a a distant part of the West, but wanted to subscribe to a magazine uh, based out of Chicago, you could subscribe to that using a money order and send $3 through the mail and then get that magazine back. Um, And so they started to use this system, again, to reliably do these kind of small-scale, oftentimes commercial transactions that were beyond the local scale. And so it became this really important commercial integration system uh, across the Western United States. 
And I think what's really interesting about this particular system and the way it progressed was that compared to, again, this more kind of bottom-up free-for-all uh, network that develops about, you know, submitting a petition and getting a post office very easily, this was much more of a top-down, centrally administered system. And there's this lifelong bureaucrat uh, named Charles McDonald in the post office department who uh, is in charge of this network. And he's much more careful about where they're going to start to offer this service. And they're only going to do it in places that can kind of reliably have cash on hand, are able to conduct these transactions more reliably. And that means that it's much more constrained. It's not as widespread. It's not a universal service. And it really doesn't become so until uh, the very end of the century into the 20th century. Um, so that's the kind of postal money order side of things. Um, and then starting around the same time in the, in the 1890s, you see a new, uh, new service being experimented with by postal administrators called Rural Free Delivery, RFD. And again, it's important to remember that unless you lived in a big city, uh, for most Americans, you had to walk to your local post office to get the mail. It's not like the system we have today. Rural free delivery is when that changed. That started to offer this delivery of the mail directly to you know, the doorstep of your house or the mailbox at the end of your driveway. And it was kind of halting at first. It took a while for it to take off, but it totally reshaped mail service in rural parts of the country. And so uh, for the first time, you know, if you're a farmer living in uh, rural Nebraska, let's say, you're able to get catalogs delivered to your house that you can then use to buy uh, appliances or farm equipment. Um, and so there's much more of this kind of connective, uh, connective tissue that's developing through rural free delivery. At the same time, it's also um, causing you know, tens of thousands of post offices to shut down over the course of several decades because you don't need you know, one post office that's within a couple miles of everyone's house anymore. And so you see this big shift in the network uh, taking place in the early 1900s with the slow rollout of rural free delivery. It's interesting that a lot of this stuff is taking place at a very small scale or kind of just the day-to-day -day life. You say they're not using money orders to, you know, do enormous commercial financial transactions, but to subscribe to a magazine from, from Chicago. Um, which on its surface, we might say, oh, that doesn't seem as important, but it's those, the buildup of all those small little things. That's what we that's what fills most of our life, right? And determines our identity, uh, our, our connection with uh, where we live and, you know, other places as well. So I think that's really, I think we can't understate the, in both of these, the money orders and the rural free delivery, that this is really transforming people's day-to-day -day life and connecting it to a broader American experience, right? This is where we start talking sometimes about some cultural homogenization, where if you live in rural, that guy in rural Nebraska, someone in San Francisco, someone in a mining camp in Idaho, uh, they may all be using the same Sears and Robot catalog and ordering the same pair of pants. Um, am I overstating the the influence that the post has in this kind of cultural homogenization or share growth of a shared American experience? I don't think so. And it's something I kind of wrestled with uh, in writing this book and trying to make this argument is that, you know, on the one hand, I really don't want to overstate the kind of causal role of the post, right? People aren't 
moving into rural Nebraska because of the post. Um, they're not becoming more culturally homogenized because of the post. What it is doing is providing a kind of underlying infrastructure um, that facilitates some of these larger processes, I think in really underappreciated ways. And you know, it's much easier for us to fixate on the really visible forms that these are taking with discounting just the basic fact of being able to communicate at a distance um, and how easily you can communicate at a distance can really shape some of these other uh, processes that are taking place at the time, um, which is a hard argument to make, right? It's it's not kind of uh, flashy. It's not intuitive. Um, and I was hoping that this, again, pairing up some of these large spatial patterns and geographical approaches to studying the network with this more, as you say, lived day-to-day -day reality, mundane interactions that are taking place uh, helps convey just how it all works and the importance of this overarching structure. I mean, you you demonstrate this most clearly with your, uh, I think it's in the second chapter with uh, uh, this family of orphans who over the course of decades, you, you trace their moving all around the West and their constant communication with one another. And one of them moves somewhere and the others follow and then they go back to where they were. But it's that the maintaining of those family ties for these four orphans uh, is possible because of the post, because they can talk with each other as they're moving all over the place. So, I mean, that's a real, uh, it was a, that was a real vivid kind of demonstration of, of that dynamic. Uh, well, we are uh, probably about out of time. Um, uh, what, you know, a last question, what are you hoping that historians of the West or even just, you know, just general Westerners, what's, what's the big takeaway that you want us to walk away from your book with? I think it's an appreciation of two things, really. One is geography itself. Um, I think, you know, anyone who lives in the West is probably aware, but geography of the West is is quite different from the rest of the country. And uh, the ability to live in relatively distant or isolated or spread out uh, areas uh, depends on all sorts of connections that then run through those uh, those areas as well. And so that's the second piece, which is to really appreciate or at least have a curiosity about some of those networks, structures, connections that I think shape all of our lives, um, but we never seem to really notice or appreciate in some ways. And I think, um, you know, it's hard not to think about the role of something like social media today, or all sorts of digital connections that are structuring our lives for better or for worse. Um, and I think it's important for us to understand some of the his history or at least historical precedents be behind uh, this connective tissue and to, uh, to study and understand kind of how these things came into being. And again, the ways in which they really do shape our lived experience. That's great. Uh, do you want to give us any insight into what, what you're working on next? Oh, I've uh, completely shifted gears uh, in a certain sense. Uh, I'm actually working on a collaborative project with uh, Annalise Hines, Dr. Annalise Hines, who's a professor at the University of Oregon. And we are uh, doing a history of uh, lesbian uh, community formation in the 1970s and 1980s. And we're doing a kind of mapping project looking at the geography um, of the lesbian community at this time, and then uh, some of the uh, connections 
between these areas, they were taking place through alternative uh, lesbian press. And so again, totally different uh, time period. It's been really fun for me to learn about uh, something new, uh, but also applying some of these same uh, mapping approaches that, that I've been doing as well. So it's been really great. Oh, that's awesome. Well, there's no shortage of new topics that will be new to you that these, you know, uh, mapping and digital skills could be applied to. So I think over the next few decades, we might see you popping up in all kinds of unexpected places, which is great. <laughs> um, well, I really appreciate your time, uh, Cameron, and uh, congrats on the book. And thanks for having a discussion with us. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been uh, been really fun. And I'm uh, I'm a fan of the podcast. So keep up the good work. Great. All right. We'll take care. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D -D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. <laughs>